Kira, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, International Education Intel. As we move into level two, there have been discussions around opening up the borders to international students and also having the systems in place to quarantine them for two weeks to discuss the future of international education in a post-COVID world and explore what internationalization might look like in this new normal. I'm joined by two guests today, Jason Matangi and Greg Scott. Jason Matangi is the Director of Global Engagement and Development at the University of Waikato. Jason has 20 years experience in the international education industry, holding management positions in both New Zealand and Australian tertiary education sectors. His roles have included strategic and business planning, change management, and the setting and achievement of international objectives and targets. His most recent position is International Director at Wintech, a role he had held for the past three years. Previous positions have included project manager at the University of Southern Queensland, director of marketing and recruitment at Deakin University, and business development manager at Education New Zealand. He holds a Master of Arts Applied Linguistics from Victoria University of Wellington. Greg Scott, principal at Greg Scott Consulting, has enjoyed a career within the business, education, and government sectors with 20 years as an international education specialist. He's a chartered accountant and has previously been a principal lecturer and international dean in the tertiary sector, as well as leadership roles in the school sector, as well as an education sector manager role within New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Greg was recently the general manager industry development at Education New Zealand. Uh, GSC is Greg's new vehicle for assisting the international education sector to reach its potential for transforming lives, communities, organizations, and nations. He's currently engaged on a variety of projects in New Zealand and Australia. Welcome to my podcast, uh, Jason and Greg. It's great to have you here. Thanks, sir. Wonderful to be here. Great to connect with Greg again as well. Um, thank you, Soshan. It's great to be here. Uh, so let me just start things off with, you know, with a question for, for both of you. So do you think international education will look radically different in a post-COVID world? What do you guys reckon? I mean, I can jump in right away. I mean, I think everybody's thinking about this. Um, and I, I did a little bit of a think piece when I first started my role at the, at the University of Waikato a couple of months ago, it was really just what are the changes we're already seeing? And I think clearly the move to online delivery. So that's happened relatively quickly. A lot of, a lot of people are actually just transforming what they did face-to-face -face into an online platform. So I think what's going to happen, and we're seeing change happen very quickly. I mean, two, like I've mentioned, two months is a long time in, in, in this period, but the expectations from students around the, the type of delivery they're getting will, will increase dramatically. And I think we will move, I think online delivery is here to stay. And I think we'll be moving into a hybrid model, I think, um, going forward. And, and I fully expect there to be the borders to be open eventually and, then, and students to come back. But I think online is here to stay. It may be the, 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 the theme that runs through, uh, that, that runs through the delivery. Um, competition, I fully expect hyper-competition to increase. Um, from, our, from our competitors in Australia and elsewhere. I think it'll be a more, um, the supply side will, will decrease. So I think we'll, we'll likely to see hyper-competition, especially with the losses that some institutions are going to be facing in the short to medium term. And that may drive a move towards more regionalism. So I think there may be a reluctance for people to travel. I, 
travel widely, but I think people may be more inclined to to move around their hubs. So I think places like Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Southeast Asia may be, may be more of a, a destination increasingly for, for big markets like China. And I think, look, the last point I'd like to make is student empowerment. Students are the most important thing in what we're doing. They're at the centre of what we're doing. And I think we have to understand their needs more and more going forward. And I think that the, the, the number of engagements that we have individually with each student will increase. Um, the, the student uh, pool will probably decrease in the short to medium term, but those engagements will increase. So I think we have to provide a lot more reassurance going forward, especially around um, health safety, not so much health and safety, but I think we can also get a, a cue for the future and delivery around products uh, from our students as well, um, because they, they will be the they will be the tester in the situation. So yeah, a lot a lot of change. Um, that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jason. Look, I, I completely agree with all of that, and perhaps just to add to to that, I think uh, Sush that. You know your your question about international education looking radically different. It's uh, it's definitely radically different now. And so what we've seen is we've seen massive interruption. And in the short term, I think our our response has quite naturally and rightly been to respond by trying to restore. Um, so restoring um, you know the the way that we deliver courses. Um, we've done that through the through online um, learning, et cetera. Um, we're trying at the moment, obviously, to, to restore things like border restrictions and to ease those, um, to, um, to have students graduate through the pipeline um, for future students coming through there to be um, to look after them and, um, and, and for the recruitment activities to be replicated. So I think in some ways the timing and extent of that um, doesn't just depend on us. Um, you know, our whole world and its customers have changed. And so we're doing what we can in the short term, and that's a radically different change. And I'd like to just acknowledge the fine work by colleagues right across the sector in responding to all of that, and in particular the care for students at a distance and in difficult conditions. Um, although it's not the primary motivation, um, that sort of work has really contributed significantly to enhancing our reputation as a country and, and to, to building our brand value for the future. So, you know, it's really good to see, um, you know, when we see the surveys that uh, IDP have recently run, to see those New Zealand running men out in front in the rest of the world <laughs> for our COVID response and safety. All of that is helped by the response in the short term. I think for me, I'm less certain about the post-COVID world, um, whenever or whatever that is. Um, I think trying to return only to business as usual is probably a, the riskiest strategy that we can have. And so we know that the fundamental drivers underpinning demand will still be there, but the way we fulfill that demand is actually, you know, it's going to change for the longer term as well. And, you know, I've been thinking about all of the issues that we've been talking about long before COVID, the, the, the changes we'd love to see in international education. And I think this crisis has accentuated the, the weaknesses and it's, it's accelerated the need for change. And so that saying, never waste a good crisis, kind of comes back to me there. But the, the difference is we thought we had five or ten years to kind of to deal with some of those impending issues. Now I think we've got much less time. And, um, you know, we, we know that there's opportunities in the longer term, 
but you know it's not a given that we'll adapt. Um, that really depends on on us. It depends on how um, how how we we react in the medium to long term as well as the short term. It's funny, you know, just just touching what you're saying, Greg. I mean, you know, I think we all remember like MOOCs and and online delivery, and then it, it was going to be the massive disruptor, and then MOOCs with an M. Um, and it didn't really eventuate. It wasn't really that dis- the disruptive influence. And mm. and I, I said this. I said this to my colleagues when I started the university. The, the model from twenty years ago, when I was at University uh, the Victoria University of Wellington, it, ninety plus percent of the revenue was coming from students flying into the country paying the tuition fee. And it's still the same today. And it's mm. like, what's happened in a generation? I mean, the the, the, the model hasn't changed. There's been a lot more. There's been a lot more work with internationalisation. A lot more work with uh, transnational, a lot more de-risking, but in a, quite a small way. I and mean, you can see it from the numbers from Education New Zealand, that, that pie, but only a small bit is made from t- uh, TNE, transnational education. But de-risking with, with delivery offshore, you know, small, shorter courses, that sort of thing, really just in, in, in the margins somewhat, even from a financial perspective especially. So, yeah, I mean, I think I saw that quote, so you said, is this the crisis we needed? You don't need a crisis, but... It is, a bit, it is a disruptor, and, and, and you have to look at the opportunities and the positives. One of the themes that has come out of previous discussions is the lack of investment in technology and the fact that we are not prepared with enough options for online or blended learning for international students, and that we are so reliant on bringing students in um, that we haven't really investigated other ways to internationalize maybe because of underlying risks. Do you, you think are we too risk averse or has, has it been too easy just bringing students in uh, for international education that we haven't bothered, you know, to go out and explore other areas? I mean, just, just it's interesting. I, I was on the working group, international working group for NZIST, the, um, the super polytechnic, if you will. And one of the fundamental questions that we were saying, well, what, what is the funding model going to be like? So say, for example, the government said, well, look, you, the sector brings in 250 million plus in tuition revenue. We'll take care of the, a greater part of that. So that would drive behaviour. So what you could argue is the, the funding model at the, at the, in the tertiary sector has actually driven behaviour. And so the, the amount of government funding from my time in the 80s through to the 90s decreased. And, and I know some vice chancellors would say, look, successive decreases in real, well, in, in proportionate terms of, of government funding has driven this behaviour towards international education. So, and now there's a massive, there has been for a long time, a massive dependency on that. So, um, and has that been too easy? I think with, an industry has has cropped up in its own right around this, you know, and it's, it hasn't been easy, but I think now that it's embedded, it, it's, it's very much relied upon. Mm-hmm. And I think and it's an industry in its own right. But... The way you break, the way that that proportion of revenue and, and exposure is broken down, is far too overweight um, student recruitment because that has still been the most, still created the biggest margin. And the way I'm talking, margin revenue, it's been a revenue model for many. And I think uh, at the university sector, you do see more of a shift towards um, research and and uh, and that relationship side, the partnership side, um, but. Um, you do you do get a sharp sense of what's important when the revenue starts to decrease. Yeah, I think I think that there definitely um, you know the risk aversion comes from uh, being living in a world where I guess it's you know you don't have to um, work very hard to um, to find you know 
enough students. Um, that's been a sort of a past uh, scenario, but you know that that hyper competition that um, Jason talks about is definitely one that um, you know we know has been coming, and and we know um, you know isn't really to do with COVID. It's really to do with the the dynamics of the of student mobility around the world. Um, but you know, my my view is that it would be very easy for international education to be left behind in a drive to to um, kind of rebuild um, domestically New Zealand mm. and for international education to be seen as the problem the the problem of overdependence where we're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We we need to see internationalization, international engagement, the ability to give all students, whether they're domestic or international, the global competencies that they're going to need, whether that's vocational or whether that's in the university sector or school sector, we need to continue to, to do that. Look, I completely agree on that. I think in, in, in sometimes in the hysteria around international students coming over, we tend to lose sight of the fact that it's not just about them coming here. It's the opportunity for our domestic students to engage with these students and build that cross-cultural mm -hmm. that's so important in, in this connected world. But, I mean, we, we tend to forget that our students actually go out as well. So it's not just students coming in. We have all parts of the world to study, to live, and international education plays such a big part in helping students bridge that uh, cross-cultural divide. So I think it's really important. So we definitely should not lose sight of that. And some of the better, um, some of the better strategies or, or international plans I've seen, they talk about um, preparing students for the globalised world of work. And the word global is, is, is peppered throughout. It doesn't make a distinction between international students and domestic. There's a two-way traffic. Well, that's the aspiration, at least, and there's a number of enablers towards that. But I think there's just a, there's a natural assumption through these good strategies around this global global environment and a globalised world of work. People will be moving around, mm. and just under, just around the sort of the, the delivery mechanisms now, and like moving towards say online or blended blended delivery. Whether that's that is, is where we're heading. You know, it's, it's it's the way we're going. Like I said before, I think the online is a thread that will that will persist through what we're doing because and it was expressed really well, really well today in a workshop. The, the way that we we're teaching or learning is the way that we'll be working in the future. Look how we're working now. So, you know, I learned you learn very much uh, when, when, you, when you're a lecturer and you guys will know better than me that the types of assessments you want to do. So your type of assessment you do during the class is replicated, say, in the final exam, you, you're not making anything different. It's sort of, the, so so it's similar with the delivery model. So the way you're delivering and receiving information will be what hopefully will be replicated in the workforce. So I think what a really good comment that I heard today was build the face-to-face -face component where it really matters. Mm. So let's just say the online, say the, the volume, the, the, the lectures and whatnot, sitting in a room of 300, 150. You know, you can do a lot of that and also reduce facilities, exposure, and costs. And, but where it really matters is that work, integrated learning, the, the internships, the tutorials, the feedback, the lecture. You're not going to get rid of that, but you enhance it where it really matters. So nobody says, oh, well, that's online. Well, no, it's just that's, that's the mechanism for delivery. But where I really want the benefit, and I think this has been – it's always been important, but that applied career focus, the employment outcomes. So, again, I think absolutely face-to-face -face is here to stay, but it, it may be a matter of 
building that connection where it really matters. Um, so I, I do think I do think you know we, we, when we get back to a sort of a, a travelling and international travel environment, maybe gradually, we will have students coming back again. But but we need to really think about where do we add the best value around it face to face. Yeah, I think uh, Sush, you were, we were talking earlier about you know how online learning was working for international students, and yep. you know the question around uh, you know is is online learning here to stay for for our students? And I think the answer to that is definitely yes. I don't think we have a choice, um, but I think as we've already said, we need to invest in this urgently. Um, it's not a time for trying to cut costs, if you like. Um, but for me, it's developing models for the for the blended approach, the blended learning, mm-hmm. rather than fully online. I think that's where the priority <coughs> should be. I think New Zealand educated students need to interact in authentic ways with New Zealand and New Zealanders. So we need to continue to grow. Um, I think of them as flagship onshore face-to-face options. Um, but we need to invest in pathway models yep. that are enhanced by ed tech and our communications technology. Um, and we're really clever at this as a nation. Um, I've, you know, in, a, in the previous role, I had a lot to do with some really smart educational technology. And, you know, as a nation, I believe really firmly that if we invest smartly, we can lead the world in that. Um, the, the, the only other thing around that for me is we've got to differentiate between the move to remote teaching that's taken place during COVID, which has been a responsive move, reactive, and the well-constructed blending learning models that, um, that are possible in the future. So, you know, looking at, at how online is working for international students at the moment might not be a good indicator of the potential it has for the future. I, I'm, I just really, I'm really interested in sort of, let's say there was no, there were no, no one's travelling to New Zealand international students until 2022. It's just so another year, a year and a half plus. So what... The demand. What so so you start really thinking. Okay, so you really have to commit to the online model. You have to improve it. Mm. And we've been talking about. Well, I think the product and what you're offering, your, your unique selling points. I mean, you really have to be very clear on them. I think what you're doing well in terms of your connections regionally or locally have to have to be sort of transferred internationally as well. But that the work integrated learning, the internships, the the pathway to employment. If they're not there. Um, the, the face-to-face, I mean, you, you have to really have some grave concerns for, for, for that future. Um, so, I, I mean, are we saying that whatever happens, whether blended, wholly, partly online, whatever, that option's always there potentially, but without, without the ability for students to travel, is, would, we be, would we have anywhere near the, the sort of the same sort of capacity or numbers of students that are learning with us, say, online, I mean, you really have to wonder. Um, and, and that would be an incredible test if it, was, if it was to continue for another year and a half. Yeah, I mean, most of the our point to the fact that students still prefer face-to-face learning because it's part of the campus experience like we talked about. It's about coming to New Zealand, um, getting immersed in the culture here, um, getting to know the place. And th- that's part of international education. I came here as an international mm. student. Yeah. 
And part of that was to experience New Zealand in its entirety. Um, so blended learning is definitely something that we should look forward to. Uh, I guess there are various ways um, and means of achieving that. But there has to be that component of uh, on-campus learning. Because at least for yeah. me, it was, yeah. it was a big part of coming to New Zealand was the on-campus learning. And um, yeah. Yeah. I guess... Oh, I, sorry. I, I think about when I've been offshore, and you know, I used to call it a hierarchy of of inquiry or questions, your student would approach and say, hi, you know, you're from New Zealand. Do you have this program, this area? And you go, yes, we do. Oh, here's, you talk about the, you talk, here's the qualification, what are the features of the qualification, what are the entry requirements, what's the cost? So it's all about the qualification to start. And then you start to get down, the longer they spend with you, okay, so what sort of, what's the breakdown tutorials, how long, and then, Oh, so um, what, what are the accommodation options in the, into the softer side potentially? But what I've realised, those things that you might eventually get to once you have a more in-depth conversation, maybe not the first thing someone's asked about, about the, the, the environment, the region, the opportunities for work, the they're incredibly important. That's what people are buying. That, that's what they're missing. And, and I wouldn't say it's been an afterthought, but the focus has been on the qualification, of course, the things that go into that, the quality, et cetera. But I think, you know, if we didn't know it well enough before, we absolutely know it now. People are buying. That's part of the price of the experience. There's rubbing shoulders with other international students and domestic students. It is living on the campus or in a flat in New Zealand. It is, it is working in the environment, getting a part-time job. It's, it's all of that. And that's, part of, that's really part of the price, to be honest. And, and that's, 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 it hasn't maybe been that explicit in the past, but definitely it's very clear now. And going back to your 2022 scenario, Jason, I think, you know, I've been thinking about the fact that we may need to develop, um, in a sense, waiting rooms that um, <clears throat> exist to essentially provide students with options while um, yeah. while the travel to New Zealand becomes more um, freer and, and more possible. So, you know, I, I think um, the world was already working more towards uh, what sort of travelling more towards um, doing more of the of the study or at least the preparatory study closer to home. Um, and so, you know, I think where we're probably behind the eight ball at, ball at this stage, but we need to catch up fast is to have those waiting rooms mm -hmm. that pathway eventually with, New Ze with options to come to New Zealand. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a challenge. I agree. We've been looking, you know, we've been talking at Waikato about different products, smaller products, and I think... Yep. Um, for want of a better term, micro-credentials, but something with credit, potentially like 15 points, say, yep. 15 points of six to say a quarter of a, a semester, um, something that would give someone a bit of credit. So at least mm -hmm. uh, it serves as a taster, it serves as, as credit, serves as uh, career enhancement, and, and not only for international, for domestic as well, because I think undoubtedly, unfortunately, there'll be many people that will be um, possibly in, you know, uh, looking for new employment, looking to upskill or transfer their skills or mm. improve. So, um, but something that we're doing, say, domestically can definitely transfer internationally. But that sort of smaller qualification space is something we're really interested in looking at. Um, but I think it you know, it comes back to I think you, we wouldn't want to shotgun it around. We want to do things that we we want to be offering those things in the areas we're really good at. Um, and I think rather than having three hundred or thirty, maybe three, four, or five in those areas. Um, and again, a lot of this is about testing, you know, testing the market and then failing a bit and coming back again because it is unknown. And, and frankly, it's, you know, lockdown and including this period, it's only been two months, like I say, since about the 25th 
of, of March. So two months is a long time, but I think it, it, we have to really try things and I think we, we, we'd be conscious of responding to the what's happening now and then having a, a view beyond that and then planning, but also I think we're conscious of doing things regularly to learn and talk to the market and get the student feedback so we're not just waiting for the the big reveal at some stage, we're actually getting constant, you know, testing and getting constant and failing half the time, potentially, but hopefully not in too big a way. Is there any appetite left for failure, you reckon? Oh, yeah, I think so, because uh, I think people are realistic about this year, you know, in terms of the international side. I think the domestic side is, has, has got some legs, obviously. I think, um, you know, people are realistic about what's possible in July, so we have to, we have to you know, we, we're doing very similar things in terms of recruitment, albeit online. Um, we're engaging with our partners, et cetera. Um, but I think we have to try, we have to try certain things. Um, and uh, that might be in the product space, uh, partnership space, testing new markets, the research space. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I use the word failure, but I just sort of think we, we're testing certain areas and then, see what gains traction, I suppose. So, yeah, there's, there's appetite for that for sure. But, yeah, people will get impatient. <laughs> I think there's a little, I wouldn't say there's any grace period, but I think people are realistic about 2020, put it that way, yeah. I'd like to also kind of, in that sort of sense, to probably introduce the idea of, yes, we need to be prepared to fail, but we also need to be in a position where we spread the risk. And I guess this sort of goes into that, that area where New Zealand needs to invest, um, but in a sense, it's we're, we're still a small nation. We don't have huge resources mm. to do this compared to our competitors. So I think harnessing the collective power, whether that's across universities, whether that's in the new NZIST or whether that's across school sector, harnessing the power of yeah. the collective is going mm. to make that risk a lot uh, more bearable for the education sector. So, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm, I've, I've advocated for a long time for um, the sector to actually collaborate and coordinate, but only in areas where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, you know, uh, we need to kind of be smart in doing that, And but there's certainly potential for more impact more capability mm, mm. and to be more agile than we have at the present. Yeah, I was, I, when we were looking uh, about a month ago, month and a half, we were looking at sort of what's our response. So there's, there's a, you know, in terms of any sort of crisis level strategy, there's an adapt, there's a recover sort of growth sort of phase, I suppose, short-term, medium-term, long-term. So I very made a very rudimentary sort of matrix where we're looking at the short, medium, long-term, but, you know, adapt. We could recalibrate. Um, because it's sounded more proactive rather than cover, and then then grow. But 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 the different streams were well. What's the government doing? You know, at this in the short, medium, long term. What, what's the sector doing, and the region, and what's the institution doing? You know, and I think I agree with with, with Greg. I think it is a coordinated approach amongst. It's multi level, multi multi layered, and I think um, we you know, the, the universities do, do a good job of, I wouldn't say lobbying, but working with the government to, to sort of pursue things like quarantine for international students and whatnot. I'm curious, um, so it's just around 1st of April, NZIST, or uh, I'm not sure if the name's official yet, but um, the new name, but, yeah, so NZIST, um, of course, it sort of got drowned out because we, we were busy with other things, COVID-19. What, 
you've got this this massive entity, um, and I saw the Auditor General's report on how big it is financially, you know, but so we know how large it is. It's you know, yeah. 16, 16 brands or institute under one roof. What's the feeling around how this potential juggernaut can respond to you know, COVID-19, or can, can respond to the future, not just COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think probably the most useful thing to come out of it is uh, the pulling in of resources, I suppose, uh, for the 16 ITP. Right. I guess something like what's happened now may, may have been probably fatal, I would say, for just an individual ITP. Um, but as as a sector, as a united sector, as NZIST, maybe there's there's more there to uh, um, to respond uh, to a crisis uh, in terms of pooling resources, um, intellectual property, uh, right? What's available, um, everything. So I think and you've got the open poly under your roof as well. Yeah, so distance learning arm there as well that's already there. They've got the systems in place. They've got the technology in place. Yes. Although it's currently tailored towards our domestic market, um, look, it, it, I'm, I'm just assuming that it won't be too difficult to scale it up uh, to suit an international market. And uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the biggest um, um, takeaway from the NZIST is, is the pulling mm-hmm. resources to, to, to work towards um, getting over this pandemic. Uh, to the mm-hmm. I, I agree, Sush, and I think that the <clears throat> biggest challenge is it's such early days for that yeah. um, that collaboration. Mm. Um, and so what's going to be even more important at this stage is for a fast emergence of strategies, especially with international education, mm. um, because everyone's doing good work in the, in the, in the, in the regions and across the network. Um, but if we're going to see some combined approaches, like I can certainly see... Um, you know, examples of where the <clears throat> the, the kind of the, the sum of the parts, you know, is going to be greater, sort of combined approaches to T&E, um, offshore pathways, um, online platform development, global mm-hmm. alliances, things like that, that, you know, hopefully will emerge fairly quickly um, to be able to respond um, with the power of the NZIST. What is it, the 30th biggest institute in the world now or something like that? Lord. <laughs> In the world, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and there, there could be a question around: Well, should this should this, this sort of mechanism or structure exist in other sectors, universities? Probably, the, probably what they have already. I mean, I think, to be honest, we can we can talk freely here. I think some sectors have a better sort of structure, like universities, New Zealand, or whatnot. To, to actually um, advocate whatnot, um, lobby potentially on behalf of their sector. Probably the ITP sector didn't ha- it had a, it had, to, had different groups and had really good individuals, but probably not a, 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 leg, a long-term sort of formal entity that was, you know, well-resourced even and paid for. So I think that's where the university sector's probably done very well, and possibly in the language sector, um, given their size, and you know, they, 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 made, they had a strong voice given their size. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, you know, I think probably the mechanisms already exist for the universities without having to sort of, you know, combine together more formally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I think they do get a lot of attention from government because they, they, the, they, they are that sort of arm that, that, that I don't want to see. Yeah, I mean, they, they are that arm that the university, that the, that the, um, the government will, will listen to quite mm-hmm. freely and, and some of the VCs have a lot of, lot of le- uh, leverage. So... In, very, very influential relationships. So I think they probably have enough capacity. 
students. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my challenge for the university sector is to be, um, you know, pushing the envelope even more at this at this time <laughs> of opportunity. So, um, you know, whether or not you agree with, um, you know, proposals around, um, you know, a New Zealand Inc. presence, mm. you know, worldwide, um, as um, Vice Chancellor Guilford um, was was proposing, whether or not you you agree with that, it's there are things like that that I think mm. we need game changes. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think just sort of, you know, incremental advances aren't aren't necessarily going to get there. But I don't agree that, you know, an IST-type solution is is necessary um, because that solution was put in place for a larger problem that the Rove is addressing. So, you know... Yeah, our our, our old friends at Education New Zealand, you know, uh, full disclosure, we've we've worked for the Ministry Search and and Greg and I work for Education New Zealand. I've, I have, I've always included, I mean, I think they've done a great job on the comms, the great job, and, and I, I reference, because they collect everything in the one place, so I think that's, they've done incredibly well there, and I think, mm-hmm. I mean, just talking to IDP India yesterday, having, having they know this, but the students may not know, so talking to, to the students and, and parents and, and staff saying, we have a, a central government agency that's responsible for X, Y, Z, we are in your country, yeah. we understand your issues. You know, we work closely with. It has a tremendous strength, mm-hmm. um, and I think the comms has been, has been really good. Um, and we could look, we can toss backwards and forwards which direction and different ways it could be going in terms of where they could be leading and, and, and whatnot. But I think, yeah, I think that there's a role, there's a there's a there's a there's a role there for education to insert themselves potentially in some spaces. But I think, look, in the in the meantime, having that collective comms for the sector, government agency, central. And the ability to to, to respond quickly and, be, and pivot quick, pivot quickly, is really invaluable at the moment. So yeah, I think it's. Yes, there would also help. For example, I think universities recently had that uh, New Zealand Centre at IIT in India. Uh, so so yeah. that model. I mean that that would probably help kind of react to situations like this probably much better than absolutely uh, from here. Uh, and, I, and I think those are the sorts of things where. You know, that's taken a number of years to get underway, I think. I mean, I, I think I was at Education Center when that was sort of mooted. Uh, or And so this is five years, you know, but it's terrific. And these things do take time, good things take time. But I think more of that sort of thing, um, that presence offshore by the sectors or by institutions, um, we can always have a diplomatic presence. But I think mm. you know, ha- having having those sorts of initiatives, really concrete stuff, I think that we, we need to encourage more of that. And and the you know the India strategy for universities has been one of the you know one of the leading lights I think and mm. one of the success stories um, that yes it did take time to to bring into into being but um, it has certainly um, proved its worth over the last few years and you know it's building on things like that and and the centre as you say Jason my mm. the other thing I would say is that you know we've we've got a as a country, we've got an international education strategy. Yeah, um, it's effectively an internationalisation strategy as much as it is to do with recruitment. Um, it's a government strategy, and I guess right now it needs you know the, this, the, it will need dusting off because it's only only a few years old, but it's still you know it's, it needs adapting to the new environment. But but again, my view would be that the sector needs to, you know, again get behind um, the opportunities that that brings and to, to mm. work, hand, work hand in hand with government. And that was the, that was the, the real uh, strength of the, of the development of an India strategy. 
Now, I don't want to be too glib, but I was talking last night um, to the IDP again, and I was, for me, I think if on the very positive side, let's just assume that travel will be very difficult this year, and I think we probably have to reconcile ourselves to not seeing any, many international students returning, you know, by November at least, but possibly next year. Then. But I think there's a potential for this pent-up demand, you know, and for people to be to, to understand now, they'll understand it now, but in, in continuing that, how good it was before, like, and, and possibly if I have an opportunity, things may happen globally, I, I should take it. So there is the potential for, I wouldn't say a growth, but just for a, a, renew, a renewal of, of demand in international education. Um, sort of a, a sl- slightly enlightened period potentially where people have, have come from a, from a period of crisis. I know there were financial pressures, obviously, but people who can. Um, I think the value of, of that, in terms of the value of the travel, the value of the living, studying, working offshore will be even more prized. Um, and we would hope that it's not only for the elite in inverted commas, it will probably already is in some respects, but I think there is the potential that we will see um, this pent-up demand and whether we can accommodate it, it will, it will roll on. So, um, you know, post-crisis sort of times, you often see this sort of response. And, and, you know, I wonder, it's probably more likely to be staged. Um, but but I'm, I'm positive and sort of hopeful for the future. I do, I do think that there is there is demand. This won't go away. Mm. Um, families and, and, and students will have aspirations for their children um, going forward. And I think... Um, they will understand even, maybe even more. It'll sharpen their senses around the importance of this and the importance of globalisation. So I'm not I'm not down on down on that at, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen any drop in uh, demand or interest from students wanting to study with us or inquiries. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose we can, like Greg mentioned, we need, we need to think uh, think outside the box here, come up with mm. more quickly. Um, but I also feel that the government. Uh, at agencies like Immigration New Zealand and NZQA, I think they yeah. just as quick to adapt to this new scenario because it's it's all well and good for us to adapt more quickly, come with new new things. But if the support structure in the way of uh, policies, immigration policies, or um, NZQA accreditation policies, mm-hmm. if they don't keep pace, mm. then we'll still get left behind. And you can see when, when we need policy made on, on, the, on the, you know, spin, when we need things quickly, it can happen. So there, there, there's sort of no excuse now uh, when you say, well, you know, it's going to take, well, we, we've shown that we can respond quickly and well and be very clear in our communication style. So if we wanted this to happen, it could. You know, I know every other sector may be, may be expecting this, but look, yeah, we've shown that we can, we can pivot and, and show strong leadership and, and make these decisions and, and move forward quickly. Yeah, when the sector to speaks with a with a united voice, and that's that's another sort of thing I'd love to see happen as as a as a lot more cohesion in terms of the the voice of the industry, the voice of the sector that um, that comes through with with government agencies, um, because sometimes you know it's it's too it's not strong enough, but it's also um, you know there's too many voices um, for for agencies to listen to, and they. They respond obviously when um, the big issues are on the table and there's something to be solved. Um, so, I'd I'd also thought about three things which, for me, um, you know, a future industry needs to think about. Um, one, and and they're all to do with sustainability. One is 
Um, we need seriously to think about um, reimagining the future in terms of environmental sustainability. Secondly, we need the economic sustainability, um, and that's all to do with diversification across yeah. all of the different dimensions. And then the other one that is really kind of dear to my heart is we're not necessarily investing enough in the people. So the sustainability of the talent coming through, because what you needed to do and know when I first became an international director is completely different to what it is now and what it will be in the next five years. So how are we developing people to be able to respond to those challenges? It's a skill, it's an upskilling thing in our own industry, as well as the people that our industry are upskilling. Totally agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, people, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that mm, this industry is built on the back of people. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. We can strategize, we can uh, use technology, but it's still, it's still the people who actually will make the difference. So no, no, I definitely agree on that. Look, on, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today on, on this podcast. It's been uh, great having you guys over. Um, I hope you know, we can talk to you guys again at some stage in the future if this continues. I, I encourage it. I think it'll be interesting in, in four or six months' time to test some of what we were talking about and see what's actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> Completely <Yeah>. agree. <laughs> <laughs> How much Keep of off. it was a load of rubbish? But um, but no, it's yeah, all no, it's I'm, all relevant. It's just whether it just pans out. You know, you never know. We're not soothsayers. I uh, know. Look, I've really enjoyed it, Shush, and, and it's great catching up again, Jason. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>